Well, good evening. We are thankful for your attendance this evening, the good crowd gathered here, and the opportunity to encourage one another. If you have your Bible, you can be turning to the book of Esther, and we're going to do our best to cover the book of Esther tonight as we have taken a look at our Book of the Month Club and begun that study again, and we'll do so as we continue to look at uh, the next one going through just the Bible in order as we have it laid out. Uh, when I first did this at Lake Hills, I considered trying to go a little more chronologically, uh, but that can get a little confusing at times, and, and so we decided we'd just kind of take them as they're listed in our English Bibles, and that's perfectly fine as well, but it makes for some interesting study as we'll see, uh, as we'll see in our study this evening. Again, we're thankful that you're here. Appreciate the, the singing today by Charles, the, the good leading that he's done, and our wonderful singing together. Blessed to hear two, two wonderful prayers from Joe and Gabby today, and uh, just thankful to worship with one another and be encouraged by that, uh, even on a beautiful day like today. As I mentioned, we're going to do our best to cover Esther. Uh, hopefully, maybe I try to find a few things just from some other sources. Maybe you've not thought about before, some things to consider as we go through the different books uh, of the Bible and trying to uh, maybe find something that would apply that you've uh, not, not heard of maybe even or certainly not thought of. And so we hope to find some encouraging things as we think about a very familiar story. And that's ultimately what it is. Most of you are good Bible students who have, have studied and have read, and, and you've heard the story of Esther before. There's no doubt about that. But as we think a little bit deeper about the book, it's going to encourage us to, to think a little bit more about some things such as the date. You may say, well, the date doesn't really matter. And I guess that's true uh, in a sense, in a bit of a sense. But it also can be encouraging as we try to piece together uh, the Bible, not only just in a general sense, but also chronologically. If you were with us, hey, that's even been before the pandemic, I guess, on Wednesday nights, as we studied Brother Roger Campbell's book, A General Overview of the Bible, we saw how it can be very interesting. And I'll be the first one to admit, I, I probably have said this before a time or two, but I think back to when I was a young person and a teenager and even growing up and going through Freed Hardeman. I mean, even making it through a four-year program in college, earning a degree, I look back to even after that and thinking, you know, I don't know that I could piece together the Old Testament history, probably like I should be able to, enough to, to gain some good knowledge from it. And I'm thankful for other congregations and good studies that we had where I, I began to, to learn to do those things. And so tonight, uh, hopefully, again, as we go through these things, we'll, we'll be able to form a better picture because it can, can be very encouraging to us as we think about the Bible. And many people say the Old Testament doesn't mean anything or we don't live by the Old Testament, but the Bible. The comfort and peace we take from knowing the way God's Word fits together. And not only that, but as we'll think about tonight, God's handiwork, God's providential plan uh, going throughout all of Scripture. Uh, let me make a mention of a couple things here as we talk about the date and we talk about the historical place of Esther or the historical settings. One of the interesting things about Esther is it is considered by most people the last historical book. So let's think about that statement and, and unpack that for a minute. When you open your Bible, when you read from Genesis to Esther, you have not even really made it through, we might say, half the Old Testament. But really, that is the his history. You make it to Esther, you can stop in a sense when it comes to historical things. Now, as we go forward and we think about the prophets and their place in things, that's perfectly fine, and it's, it's good for us to know as well. But Genesis to Esther is the history of Israel as we think about it. In fact, as we think about the Old Testament, Joshua 
Joshua through Esther, those 12 books of history cover about a thousand years of Old Testament history. And really, we would often call Esther a, a book that may be considered post-captivity. You'll say, well, there's, there's still a little bit of people in captivity. Yes, that, that may be true, but we're going to come back and, and talk about that as we think about uh, Esther's place in the grand scheme of Scripture. And we'll come back to that in one of our slides in just a moment. If you'd like to make notes in your Bible, let me give you one that might be encouraging here. Go to the book of Ezra. If you go to the book of Ezra, and again, if you'd like to make notes, this is a good spot. You may or may not have room there. But Esther, or excuse me, Ezra, Ezra chapter 6 and 7. Many people agree, and it seems to be the case, that Esther, the events of Esther, fit in between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. And so I've heard some preachers say before that they've gone in at the end of Ezra chapter 6 and made a notation and said, this is where Esther takes place. What do we mean by post-captivity? Well, the books, or excuse me, the events in the book of Esther fit between the first and the second return of the Jews back to Jerusalem. Now, I'm taking you way back. Now, this has been a month ago. We talked about Nehemiah, but I'm taking you all the way back to 2020, excuse me, 2020, where we talked about Ezra, and we talked about the return of the Jews from captivity back to Jerusalem. There were two. The first was led by Zerubbabel, and then Esther is going to fit in after that. And then if you look in Ezra chapter 7, you'll see the arrival of Ezra. The first return was by Zerubbabel. The second return was by Ezra. So if Ezra returns in Ezra chapter 7, then it's between those accounts that the book of Esther fits in. Again, you won't usually find that in your Bible. It may seem a little confusing to, to hear this and to say that, but that is where it fit in. Some people believe that the book, the events, I'm going to keep saying that, the events of Esther take place over the course of about 10 to 20 years. You may find different people that will say different things there. Now, who is the author of Esther? That's usually an important thing. And for your notes there, I gave you a common theme throughout the Old Testament books. We want, I think, we want with our human minds and some of us with the way our brains work and we're wired, we want to be able to point and say one particular person or one particular thing. But in truth, if you go and you do a look, there's not one name that's mentioned. And so it's uncertain. It's possibly Ezra or it's possibly Mordecai. Another interesting thing that we will come back to in just a few minutes is that it was probably written during the exile, during captivity, and it was written perhaps, perhaps, even using official documents from the people who had them in captivity. In this case, it would be Persia. It was perhaps written even using official Persian documents for part of it. I'm going to give you a little more. That's just a little sprinkle there. I'm going to give you a little more when we come back to some other points here in just a few moments. A couple of the other interesting things about the book of Esther, one of which is that Esther is the only biblical record. Again, listen to the phrase. I don't, I don't mean to confuse you tonight. But Esther is the only biblical record of the Jews who did not return home. We're talking about them being in captivity 
And being under Persian control, we're going to talk about some of the main characters. You think about the kings who are involved here. And so Esther is the only biblical record. We can go back and read other records. We can read uh, human records that were recorded for us. But Esther is the only biblical record of the Jews who did not return home, but chose instead to remain, I guess you might call it captivity, but to remain in Persia. At that time. So that's an interesting designation there. A couple of the other interesting designations for the book of Esther, one of which is that God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. I don't know how many of you have read it. Probably many of you had already as you worked through the books of the Bible this year and been signing our banner in the lobby. But Esther is the place where is the place in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned, nor is prayer mentioned. Now there's a mention as you read through it of fasting, but there is no mention of God's name. Ten chapters and not a mention of God's name. But don't be mistaken. That doesn't mean that you don't see God in the book of Esther. In fact, Matthew Henry, if you look in our library or you're interested in looking up commentaries, one of the more famous commentators is Matthew Henry. And Matthew Henry said it this way. He said, if the name of God is not here, his finger is. We might say his hand is. And I think that is certainly the case. And really, uh, when we, well, let's go one more point here. The other thing that we would mention that's interesting about Esther is that it is not quoted in the New Testament either. You go to the New Testament and there is no direct quotes from the book of Esther. Now, some people would say then that Esther shouldn't have been included in the Bible. But there are a few uh, other arguments that you, we can make on, on the, in the case of that. One thing we might say, if you have your Bible there and you're looking at Esther chapter 1, you may see the word and. My Bible in the New King James has the word now, but some of them begin with the word and, which may show a connection to other books. Do you recall that we have talked about that in, during the Old Testament times and even going forward that these things would have been recorded on one scroll? There was the books of the Chronicles. There was the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so maybe Esther was included with those. And the word and at the beginning of the book of Esther reminds us that you know, that book would have been connected to these other books. We don't have to, to be worried that it's not quoted in the New Testament. There are several others. I didn't have time, I'm sorry to say, for the full research. I'm pretty sure Song of Solomon is one that may be you know, well-known but is not, not quoted in the New Testament. I think Lamentations and Zephaniah may have been a couple others that are not quoted in the New Testament. So there's no means to worry or to say, oh, well, that's something we should be afraid of and should you know, then disbelieve Esther. No, that's not the case. But certainly, uh, Esther is, is not quoted. So, you know, what, what's the reason? What, what's the reason that God's name is not found there? What's the reason, maybe, that it's not quoted in the New Testament? Well, let me take you back a few minutes ago. Because it's possible that if the book was written using official Persian documents, that maybe God's name was not in those. Why would people who were writing for Persia... Making these official documents of history, you know, use God's name if they don't believe in God, the God of heaven. And so if some of those are being used, and that's a possibility, you may look as you look through the book of Esther and notice that Mordecai, one of the most, of course, well-known characters, Mordecai is called the Jew. Esther is called the queen. Why are they not called by their names? I mean, Esther is the hero, right, of the story. Esther is the hero, we would say. But her name, is she's called the queen and not called by her name. Well, once again, just a possibility. It's there by inspiration. 
Don't get me wrong, but it's possible that if there were some documents that were used, it may be part of the reason uh, why God's name is not mentioned or why it's not quoted in the New Testament. If you look at uh, Esther chapter 2 and verse number 23, Esther 2.23, you'll see this phrase. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, I don't know how many of you have done deep study into, you know, the, the original language, into the original writings. There can be a lot there. It doesn't necessarily have to drive us crazy or make us worried, but it can be very interesting for us to consider some of these things as we think about, uh, think about Esther. Now, I didn't include it in your outline tonight for, for various reasons, and one of those being space, of course. But let's talk for just a minute about a brief outline or the contents. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and going through chapter 2, is, of course, when Esther becomes queen. Uh, the queen Vashti is degraded. You know, she is removed from office, we might say, and there is planned to find a new queen. And in chapter 2, Esther becomes the queen. And when we, we didn't take the time to read through all of the principal characters, but you'll remember some of those. Of course, Vashti, we're going to come back to her in just a few moments. She was the king, and as the king calls her in to, I don't know, perform might not be the right word, but to entertain the people who are gathered at this feast, she refuses to do so. Then they're going to, of course, remove her, uh, dethrone her, and then Esther is going to become the queen. And Mordecai then gets involved, and we meet as well Haman, the, moral, the morally, uh, spiritually bankrupt villain of the story, if you will. So Esther becomes queen in chapters 1 and chapters 2. In chapter 3, let me get my notes here, excuse me, chapter 3 through chapter 5, we see that Haman comes up with this plot and that he is going to exterminate exterminate the Jews. A day is selected, there is a plan that is put in place, and Mordecai mourns, beginning in chapter 4. There is worry among the Jews about what is going to happen. And the, probably some of the most famous part, in beginning in chapter 4 in verse number 10, is when Esther agrees to become part of the plan and agrees to help petition the king, sort of takes her life in her own hands, as we kind of think about, by going and approaching the king. And at the same time, her, she is accepted by the king, and she invites him and Haman to a, a banquet. And Haman's plot then against Mordecai becomes known, and we think about chapter 5, where this bank, uh, banquet takes place. And so sort of a second section, we might say, is when uh, Haman comes up with this plot to exterminate the Jews. But then the back half, or maybe back third, as we're looking at of the book here, is of course begins in chapter 6. And that is that as the king hears a reading of the Chronicles and re is reminded of Mordecai's thwarting of the plot against the king, the king honors Mordecai. And Haman unwittingly provides the plan for honoring his enemy. It's a great story, a great account as we think about it. Um, but there's the downfall of Haman. And there is ultimately, as then he is killed, there is the deliverance of the Jews. That's going to be important as we begin to think about some lessons here in just a few moments. As we begin to make some, to think about some application, uh, the Jews being imp an important part of this story is going to be something that, that's a big deal, even moving forward 
through history. And so certainly as Haman has his downfall, as he comes about, he's trying to be the villain. He is trying to do away with the Jews, but once he is exposed and he is hanged, and then Mordecai becomes in his place, and Esther then is sort of you know, elevated in the way and is the hero of this story as she has taken on the work of defending, I guess defending the Jews, you might say, but being a part of them and their deliverance from Haman and his wicked and awful plan here. One thing I did not include, let me give you a couple of key verses. I didn't include them on the slides. But let's look at Esther chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12. Esther chapter 1 verses 10 through 12, first of all. This is going back to Vashti, and we know that Vashti is called before the king, and verse number 11, that she is called before to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Now, it's important to note that almost all biblical scholars, as they look back at this, would agree, most all of them are in agreement, that this is not just come sit in front of us, but this is going to be a parade of sort, and probably more than likely without her clothes on. It was the, was the idea behind this, to be, be brought before uh, the men and, and even the people who would be gathered there. And so Vashti makes a stand. And it's an important point, and we'll get to the application in just a moment. Here in chapter 1, and she's going to refuse to do that. It's important because, of course, then it also paves the way for Esther becoming uh, the queen after her and then being involved with the plot and the plots that we've already mentioned. Let's, let's look at Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Esther 4, 14 through 16. This is what you, of course, no doubt are more familiar with of anything of the book of Esther. And the quotations from it. But Mordecai is speaking and he says to Esther, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther, and they're speaking by other folks here, but Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will, go, will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You know, that's a lot of words kind of cram-packed there in a very few short sentences that give us a lot of information and a lot of practical points as we think about what Esther is saying there. Many, many lessons, many, many Bible classes have been discussed using just those words that are there. When we talk about providence, and we'll come back to that at the end in just a second, but we talk about providence, there's a lot to consider. But I ask you, as we usually do, to put yourself into the position of Mordecai and put yourself in the position of Esther and try to imagine real-world issues, real-world problems. And I'm afraid what we do is we, we kind of, I don't know if it's Monday morning quarterback, we sometimes call it, but we, we can look backwards at things and say, well, of course, or, well, that was easy because we know what happens, right? We can look here later, thousands of years later, and look back and say, well, of course you made the right decision. But I challenge you, 
And a similar connection, someone that we've not talked about in our Book of the Month Club, but we have talked about in Bible classes, is someone like Daniel. Put yourself in the shoes of Daniel. We look back and we say, well, Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. Everybody knows that story. He was saved. It's all great. Everything works out well. Do you think Daniel knew that? Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that? Do you think Esther really, really knew? Or do you think at the end of verse 16 there when she says, if I perish, I perish, she realized that was a very real possibility. I know that we have it pretty easy here in the United States of America. appreciate Joe's prayer and others here who we pray for this great country. We pray for our leaders. Charles talked in our class this morning here in the auditorium, if you were a part of that, about suffering. Kind of had a real brief discussion on what real suffering is. And I think most of us look around us and we say, this is not real suffering. I mean, sitting in the air-conditioned right among our brethren in these pews, it's, it's not much suffering going on here. There's not much persecution, we sometimes say. And so I think it's a challenge for us as we think about some of these key verses. But imagine, tonight, and I usually challenge you, we challenge ourselves at the end of the Sunday night sermon and the lesson after a full day here, go home and think on these things tonight and tomorrow. As you pillow your head tonight, trying to really imagine what Esther might have been going through and thinking as she said those words. 2021, yeah, it's pretty easy to think back and say, oh, it all worked out. Mordecai and Esther were really struggling with these things. And sometimes we struggle with the same thoughts. That being said, let's make some application and look at a few practical lessons. Number one, God highly values women's modesty. Say that very carefully there, because I would say that God values modesty in a lot of ways and in all people. But Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, give us the passage that we looked at just a few moments ago, where we think about exactly what Vashti, Queen Vashti, was going through. And that she is going to struggle with the same thing that Esther's going to struggle with. And am I going to obey the king or not? Am I going to be obedient? Am I going to do what he says? And Esther ultimately disobeys by approaching him. But Queen Vashti is willing to, to not come when he calls for her. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 is one of those places that we usually have to turn to in the New Testament to think about modesty. When Paul writes to Timothy, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And let me challenge you here, or just tell you, when we write on the screen and we talk about these things, we're talking about Vashti. Paul is writing to Timothy about women. But when we think about modesty, and we have spoken about modesty here before. You probably uh, discussed that in various classes and things. But it's not just always simply about wearing enough clothes, although that is an important part, especially in our world today. But what does Paul write there to Timothy again? We're looking for. What are we looking for? What is proper? Proper for women who are professing godliness and with good works. That's what we're looking for. God values it as he has Paul write by inspiration to Timothy to encourage women to be modest. Maybe, yes, to wear enough clothes because in our society currently there is a trend towards not wearing enough clothes or covering our bodies. But let's go back to Vashti as well into the book of Esther and think about how much God, even in the Old Testament, values modesty among women. Enough clothing may be part of it, 
but not in a gaudy fashion as well as Paul would write or as, as Timothy would be reading there from the words of Paul. Gold or pearls and those kinds of things. It's a deeper discussion than we have time just in a few moments here. But God values the modesty of women, both here in the, the book of Esther as we read about Vashti and, yes, even in the New Testament. Let me encourage you with one that I did not put in your notes here before we move to our last point. Follow because there's two slides that are connected here. When we think about the book of Esther, we would notice that God has plans for his people to accomplish great things for him when they bravely live for him. We've already mentioned Esther chapter 4. We even think forward to Esther chapters 8 and 9 with Mordecai and Haman and Esther saving the Jews in chapters 8 and 9. God has plans for his people to accomplish great things for him when they bravely live for him. That's an important point as we think about the events in the book of Esther. But think about it in connection with this as well, that those who oppose God's plan will be punished even if they seem to have the upper hand presently. You know, we go back to our country again for just a few moments and we, we worry and we lament and we think about the folks who are promoting the ideas that are against the Bible and against the Word of God, and we get a little downcast, a little downtrodden if we're not careful, because we realize that we are in the minority. We realize that there are people in power and people who have a voice, maybe, people whose voices are heard <clears throat> on the news, who, who have commercials out there and all of these things, and it's frustrating to us, and rightfully so, because they're saying things that are against the Word of God. But sometimes if we're not careful, we get so down about it that we think there's no hope. We think that, that this is it, that we're overwhelmed and there's nothing that we can do. But as we think about Haman, old wicked Haman, who had promoted himself and had put himself in such a position that he was exalting himself, that he was above reproach, he was above trouble. But yet those who oppose God's plan will be punished, even if for a while they seem to have the upper hand. We don't want to just wish ill on everyone. You know, these people that I kind of keep referring to in a general way who are promoting these ideas, ah, we don't want for them just to, to suffer. We don't want for them to, to suffer ill and to suffer for eternity in hell. But of course, if they continue by their choices to live that way, that would be what would happen. But we must also remember that even though we sometimes feel in the minority and feel like we don't have a voice, there's nothing we can do, we must recognize that those who oppose God will be punished. They will reap what they have sown, as we say as well. And I think those are a couple important points that we didn't have space for in our notes as well. But very quickly here at the end, the practical lessons that we would want to really learn and drive home from the book of Esther is God's providence and God's sovereignty. God's providence, man, oh man, we could spend another hour talking about God's providence Ultimately, it's hard to know. It's hard to know and understand God's providence. We have the benefit of looking back and seeing that Queen Esther goes before the king. And in the end, it works out good for her. But it doesn't always work out best for everyone. It's hard sometimes to look back and say whether or not it's God's providence. But God's providence protects his people even, let's say it this way, even when he is not working miraculously. You know, we look at the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament, there are sometimes miraculous events that take place. God is protecting his people. But God's providence protects his people even when he is not working 
miraculously. The question there, of course, in Esther chapter 4 and verse number, uh, verses 14 through 16, you know, who knows, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Guess what? Esther didn't really know. Mordecai didn't really know. We kind of have an idea looking back later as we can see how things worked out. And so providence is something that we have to be, be careful about. You know, this is something that we kind of touched on last Sunday night at the conclusion of our lesson as well. When someone is saved because of prayer or, you know, we pray for someone and they're saved. We pray for someone and then they ultimately pass away. You know, who's to say in our position what exactly was God's will? Or somebody says, well, God was looking out for me but not for them or them not me. You know, it's kind of tough sometimes as we really consider the providence of God. But yet it's important that we realize that God does work providentially. One of the most important ways, as we think about providentially here, of course, is the saving of the Jews. We think about Jesus coming, that promise of the Messiah coming through that line. If I guess if Haman's plan had come to fruition and the Jews had been exterminated, you know, we can ask here and talk about what ifs, what might have happened. But God saved the Jews through Esther. God's providence was working and that bloodline was preserved. And of course, the Messiah is going to come. One thing that we talk about in our Old Testament reviewing of the books is looking for Jesus in the Old Testament and the way that Jesus is mentioned sometimes in prophecy or in other ways well this is it the Jews are sort of on the brink if you will down to their last moment if you'll allow me to say it that way but God in his providence and in his sovereignty is still working and that's the last word there sovereignty God's sovereignty of course is his supreme power and authority we might say, as we're thinking about his sovereignty, a great passage to consider as we conclude this evening is Psalms chapter 66 and verse number 7. Psalm 66 and verse number 7. He ruleth by his power forever. God rules by his power. God is sovereign. He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. God is sovereign. He has authority. And we can look at the book of Esther and hold Esther up as queen, as the hero, the savior of the Jews in a sense at this time. But we can also look at wicked Haman or anyone and tell them, don't exalt yourself because you won't triumph over God. See, Haman was one of those who thought he had it all figured out. He thought he had it and he was going to institute his plan and things were going to be perfect for old Haman. But he met his demise even before the end of this fairly short book of the book of Esther. God's providence and God's sovereignty. If I challenge you to take this lesson home, you wrap your mind around that the rest of the night. You know, you go home and think about God's providence and God's sovereignty and you'll have a headache maybe by the time the night is over. But we begin to see how the, some of these things apply to our lives. And we can take great comfort in reading Esther and thinking about her plan, her role, and the role of the book of Esther, not only in the Old Testament, but in the Bible as whole, and even to us as Christians today. As we conclude this lesson, we extend the Lord's invitation. We are saved, of course, by Jesus, by the blood of Jesus that we come in contact with in baptism. Being buried with him, coming in contact with his blood, and having our sins washed away so that the Lord can add us to his church. If you're here tonight and you're subject to the Lord's invitation by becoming a Christian, we will sing to encourage you so that you can know that salvation. Uh, we didn't even mention one of the passages that talks about the Jews celebrating 
the celebration that they are saved, that they can continue on. It's wonderful. We can have a same, the same type of celebration even today. Not in the same sense, of course, but in the sense of one who would become a Christian, a child of God, even tonight. Maybe you're here and you've done that. We can celebrate with you as well. Maybe you need to come back to God. Maybe you need to make your life right. Maybe you need to repent of sin, confess it even before this audience so that we can pray with you and for you. Maybe you need the encouragement of your brothers and sisters as we are gathered here. It's one of the great blessings. We worship him and we also encourage one another. We're thankful for the opportunity that exists, the chance to be together and encourage you even with this song now as we stand together and as we sing.